Hello and welcome to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. This is the first episode of February. This week I wanted to cover another historical case as I find that there is more information and a lot more room for speculation. This was at a time where DNA was not a forensic method that was known or used. Even fingerprints were in their infancy and it took the police at the time to physically look at every print to be able to be compared to their distinguishing features. Please refer back to one of my previous episodes on finger printing. So, have you ever heard of the serial killer Leather Apron? You might have heard of him by a different name, but this was one of the very first he was given due to his butchery. How about another clue? He was active in London around 1888. Now some listeners will be catching on to the clues now, but before I remove the figurative veil on our killer, let us discover what London was like in 1888. Like cities today, There were obviously parts that were inhabited by quote-unquote immoral people and criminally active people. However, like today, it is hard to tarnish all the areas of cities with that same brush. While I'm from Liverpool, there's a certain postcode or suburb that's known for criminal activity, but it's home to some of the most beautiful architecture and it was once the home of the richest sea merchants in the city. East End of London has been painted by most journalists or scholars as a dark, dirty slum where the lowest of the low conducted their business and lived their lives. In 1888, Canon Samuel Barnett, the vicar of St. Jude's Church on Commercial Street, who was an ardent campaigner for social change in the areas and who was therefore familiar with the slum areas, wrote to the Times newspaper and pointed out, the greater part of Whitechapel is as orderly as any part of London and the life of most of its inhabitants is more moral than that of many whose vices are hidden by greater wealth. But, of course, these were not the type of people that the social reformers and philanthropists could use to utilize in their battles to bring about change. Nor were they the type of people that journalists could shock their readers with in order to increase their newspaper sales. Their sensation-seeking readers thirst after salacious accounts of crimes and criminals, or rogues and unfortunates, drunken brawls and dark deeds of infamy. So the honest, hard-working EastEnders found themselves largely ignored. And it was the areas admittedly large, underclass, that became the stereotypical EastEnder in eyes of many. The modern police force in this time was still in its infancy. Robert Peel established the London Metropolitan Police Force in 1829. The Bobbies adopted his nine principles of modern policing, which essentially made them citizens in uniform. They streamlined authority and policing by consent. Robert Peel was far ahead of his time, 
and his involvement in the justice system did not stop at the police force. He actually made changes to the penal code, which resulted in 100 crimes no longer being punishable by death, and regular payments for jailers and educations for inmates and jails. However, let's use our imagination now. The streets would have been clogged full of human waste, horse waste, and stagnant water. And the smell would have been an assault to our modern senses. At night, the streets were lit by candles, and the glow of the light would have been just enough to see a few meters in front of your face in some places. Buildings were built close together, and if you are a person with no regular income, a poor unmarried woman, or an orphan child, then you would be looking for a bed to sleep in every night, as you would not have a regular place to stay. In the mid-19th century, England experienced an influx of Irish immigrants who swelled the populations of the major cities, including the East End of London. And then from 1882, Jewish refugees fleeing from Tsarist Russia and other areas of Eastern Europe emigrated to the same area. The parish of Whitechapel in the East End became increasingly overcrowded, with the population increasing to approximately 80,000 inhabitants by 1888. The work and housing conditions worsened and significant economic underclass developed. 55% of children born in East End died before they were five years old. Robbery, violence, and alcohol dependency were commonplace, and the endemic poverty drove many women to prostitution or sex work to survive on a daily basis. In October 1888, London's Metropolitan Police Service estimated that there were 62 brothels and 1,200 women working as sex workers in Whitechapel, with approximately 8,500 people residing in 233 common lodging houses within Whitechapel every night. With the nightly price for a single bed being four pence and the cost of sleeping upon a lean-to or hangover rope stretched across the dormitory being two pence per person. In the autumn of 1888, a series of murders carried out predominantly on female sex workers were carried out by the killer originally known as Leather Apron. He then acquired the nickname, which is known all around the world today as Jack the Ripper. An epiphany. The large number of attacks against women in the East End during this time adds uncertainty to how many victims were actually murdered by Jack. 11 separate murders stretching from the 3rd of April 1888 to the 13th of February 1891 were included in the Metropolitan Police's investigation and were known collectively in the police docket as the Whitechapel murders. However, opinions vary as to whether these murders should have been linked to the same culprit. But five of the 11 of the Whitechapel murders, known as the Conical Five, are widely believed to be the work of the Ripper. 
I personally believe that it's very hard for a person to start out the killing straight out as number one of the Chronicle Five, as most serial killers are known to have a gradual escalation. Most experts always point to the deep slash wounds to the throat, followed by extensive and abdominal and genital area mutilation, with the removal of internal organs and the progressive facial mutilations as the distinctive features of Jack's modus operandi, or MO. MO is clear actions, injuries, or other details that are associated with a specific perpetrator and therefore gives them their signature. The first two cases in the Whitechapel murders files include those of Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram. They are not included in the Chronicle 5. However, I will be going over their cases today as I do think it is important that we acknowledge all the victims. On Tuesday the 3rd of April 1888, following Easter Monday bank holiday, 45-year-old sex worker Emma Elizabeth Smith was assaulted and robbed in Whitechapel in the early hours of the morning. Bank holidays for those who are not British-born are essentially public holidays. They were formed from the holidays that banks used to take, hence the name bank holidays. Although she survived the attack, she was injured and managed to walk back to her lodging house in Spitterfields, which is located near Whitechapel. She told the deputy keeper, Mary Russell, that she had been attacked by two or three men, and Russell took Smith to the London Metropolitan Hospital, where a medical examination revealed that a blunt object had been inserted into her vagina, rupturing her penetrium. She developed penetritis and died at 9am the following day. The inquest into her death was conducted on the 7th of April by the coroner of for East Middlesex, Wynne Edward Baxter, who also conducted inquests on six of the later victims. The local inspector of the Metropolitan Police, Edmund Reed of H Division Whitechapel, investigated the attack but the culprits were never caught. Walter Jew, a detective constable, believed that Smith was to be the first victim of Jack, but his colleagues suspected her murder was a work of a criminal gang. East End sex workers were often managed by gangs, and Smith could have been attacked by her pimps as punishment for disobeying them, or as an act of intimidation. She may not have wanted to identify her attackers because she feared reprisal. I sit on the fence with this one. Violence against women occurred extremely often, but it is also not unheard of for a serial killer to test out whether he can get away with a crime less violent than the ones that he eventually commits. It's also highly probable that Jack was a local to the area of Whitechapel, as he was known to be able to slip through dark streets and escape capture when he was caught essentially in the act in later crimes. So the fact that he could have been part of a gang or associated with one is not altogether far-fetched. 
The witnessing of crimes would have given him inside knowledge to where sex workers would have regularly walked or tried to gather their business. It would also give him the confidence if he was being egged on or encouraged by other gang members. On Tuesday the 7th of August, following a Monday bank holiday, coincidence? Sex worker Martha Tabram was murdered about 2.30am. Her body was found at George Yard Building's Whitechapel three hours after she had been allegedly murdered. She had been stabbed 39 times about her neck and torso and her genitals with a short blade. With one possible exception, all of her wounds have been inflicted by a right-handed individual. Though I believe this type of forensic evidence can be altered and it is subjected to conjecture. The police did not connect Tabron's murder with the earlier murder of Emma Smith, but they did connect her death with the later murders. However, I believe the fact that her murder happened after a bank holiday like Smith's is something that we can actually draw a link. However, there are experts who do not connect Tabron's murder with the others attributed to Jack because she had been repeatedly stabbed, whereas later victims typically suffered slash wounds and abdominal mutinations. However, a connection cannot be ruled out since this would have been another early murder. Slashes to the neck, even though multiple, could have been the experiment in the weapon used. Serial killers usually over time hone their tools and their methods through trial and error. Although this brutal way of putting this, it is a theory that is accepted by most forensic psychologists. I believe Tabram was a victim of Jack's and the link with it happening on a bank holiday strongly links it to Smith's. Now to the first of the Conical Five. On Friday, the 31st of August, Mary Ann Nichols was murdered in Bucks Row, a back street in Whitechapel. Her body was discovered by cart driver Charles Cross at 3.45 a.m. on the ground in front of a gated stable entrance. Her throat had been slit twice from left to right and her abdomen was mutilated by a deep jagged wound. Several shallower incisions across the abdomen and three or four similar cuts on the right side were caused by the same knife used violently and downwards. I think this is a clear link to Tabron's murder, as although it is not 39 stab wounds, it's still multiple slashes. The killer may have had a better weapon than the short-bladed one from the earlier case, but he's still seen as being fine-tuning his skills to how best he can get his desired result. Seamless mutilation. As the murder occurred in the territory of Bethnal Green Division of the Metropolitan Police, it was first investigated by the local detectives. On that same day, James Monroe resigned as the head of the Criminal Investigation Department, the CID, 
over differences with the Chief Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Charles Warren. So this caused disruptions from the start. The initial investigations into the murder had little success, although elements of the press linked it to the two previous murders and suggested the killing may have been perpetrated by a gang, as in the case of Smith's. But the Star newspaper suggested instead that a single killer was responsible and other newspapers took up their storyline. Suspicions of a serial killer at large in London led to the secondment of Detective Inspector Frederick Aberline, Henry Moore and Walter Andrews from the central office at Scotland Yard. On the available evidence, Coroner Baxter concluded that Nichols was murdered just after 3am when she was found. However, I'm really unsure how he came to this conclusion as modern medicine cannot always be so accurate and medical examiners do not tend to give an exact time. They give sort of a open variation of time. In his summing up, he dismissed the possibility that her murder was connected with those of Smith and Tabram, as the lethal weapons were different in both those cases, and neither of the earlier cases involved a slash to the throat. However, by the time that the inquest into Nichols' death had concluded, a fourth woman had been murdered, and Baxter noted, the similarity of the injuries of the two cases is considerable. I feel that Baxter dismissed the possibility of them being related too quickly, and this may have given the killer a boost of confidence that he needed to commit his next murder, as he was still undetected. The mutilated body of the fourth woman, Annie Chapman, was discovered on the morning of Saturday the 8th of September on the ground near a doorway of a courtyard in Spitfields. Chapman had left her lodgings at 2am on the day she was murdered, with the intention of getting money from a client to pay her rent. Sex work was the way that these women worked to get their money in order to pay for their lodgings. Her throat was cut from left to right. She had been disemboweled and in her intestines had been thrown about her abdomen and over each of her shoulders. The morgue examination revealed that part of her uterus was missing and the pathologist, George Phillips, was of the opinion that the murderer must have possessed some anatomical knowledge to have sliced out the reproductive organs in a single movement with a blade about six to eight inches long. However, the idea that Jack possessed surgical skills has still been dismissed by other experts. As the bodies were not examined extensively at the scene, it has also been suggested that the organs were actually removed by mortuary staff who took advantage of bodies that had already been opened to extract organs that they could sell as surgical specimens. This was known to be rife at the time. Both the speculations of Jack having atomical knowledge and also it being the, the mortuary staff are both relevant because both were and could have been true at the time. 
But because crime scene investigation was not a major part of investigations during this time, it's not known. I think it's prudent to think that Jack did have some knowledge, even if it was butchery, or perhaps his escalation of his killings made it easier to cut his victims. There may have been lots of victims that were not known about, as they were considered to be even more insequential at the time. People of colour, for example. There could have been a lot more victims that were just not bothered about that he could have practiced on and he could have discovered and could have honed his skills. On the 10th of September, the police arrested a notorious local called John Pfizer, dubbed Leather Apron, who had a reputation of terrorizing local sex workers. His alibis for the two most recent murders were corroborated and he was released without charge. This is where the first nickname of Leather Apron came from. Butchers at the time commonly wore leather aprons as they were long-wearing and easier to clean. At the inquest, one of the witnesses, Mrs. Elizabeth Long, testified that she had seen Chapman talking to a man where she was later found. Baxter inferred that the man Mrs. Long had seen was the murderer. Mrs. Long described him as over 40, a little taller than Chapman, of dark complexion and foreign shabby genteel appearance. He was wearing a brown deer stalker cap and a dark overcoat. Another witness, Carpenter Albert Kadosh, had entered the neighbouring yard at about the same time. He had heard voices in the yard falling by the sound of something or someone falling against the fence. A mob attacked the Commercial Road police station, suspecting that the murders were being held there. Samuel Mortigu, the member of Parliament for Whitechapel, offered a reward of £100, roughly about £12,000, or shall we say $24,000 Australian dollars or $20,000 American dollars as of 2023. After rumours of the attacks were Jewish ritual killings, and this led to anti-Semitic demonstrations. Local residents actually founded the White Chippewa Vigilance Committee under the chairmanship of George Lusk and offered a reward themselves for the apprehension of the killer, something the Metropolitan Police refused to do because such a move could lead to false or misleading information. The committee employed two private detectives to also investigate the case. Unfortunately, there was a lot more changes in the top jobs of the police, which caused confusion on who was in charge. Many of the chief inspectors went on extended sick leave because of their lack of knowledge of the job and the high expectations. It may have been just too much for them. Next, a German hairdresser named Charles Ludwig was taken into custody on the 18th of September on suspicion of the murders, but he was released less than two weeks later when a double murder demonstrated that this real comfort was still at large.
On Sunday, the 30th of September, the body of Elizabeth Stride was discovered about 1am in Duffield's yard, inside the gateway of 40 Burner Street, Whitechapel. She was lying in a pool of blood with her throat cut from left to right. She had been killed just minutes before, and her body was otherwise unmutilated. It is possible that the murderer was disturbed before he could commit any mutilation of the body by someone entering the yard, perhaps Louis de Mulch, who discovered the body. This points to the question that Jack had chosen his victim specifically, and this was not a murderous rampage, since he would have just killed the intruder on the scene too. However, some commentators on the case conclude that Stride's murder was unconnected to the others on the basis that the body was unmutilated, that it was the only murder to, to occur on the South Whitechapel Road, and that the blade used might have been shorter and of a different design. However, it must be considered that if all the ca- cases are linked, he used a shorter blame, blade on Tadman's murder earlier. So isn't this another link to the earlier murders? Most experts, however, consider the similarities in the case distinctive enough to connect Stride's murder with at least two of the earlier ones, as well as that of Catherine Eddowes on the same night. As we have seen in the case of serial killers, if they are disturbed at one scene, then they will go on to another to be able to carry out their crimes, if they have not satisfied their urge that they require, and that urge does not simply turn off for them. They need to succeed, otherwise their anger might spill into their quote-unquote normal life and highlight them as a suspect, which they do not want to tarnish their outside image. 45 minutes later, Catherine Eddowes' mutilated body was found by PC Edward Watkins on the southwest corner of Mitre Square in the City of London. A, just a quick walk from Burner Street. She had been killed less than 10 minutes earlier by a slash to the throat left to right with a sharp pointed knife. Her face and abdomen were mutilated and her intestines were drawn out over her right shoulder with a detached length between her torso and left arm. Her left kidney and most of her uterus had also been removed. The Eddowes inquest was opened on the 4th of October by Samuel F. Langham, the examining pathologist. Dr. Brown believed the perpetrator had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs, and from the position of the wounds in the body, he could tell that the merger had knelt on the right of the body and worked alone. However, the first doctor on the scene, local surgeon Dr. George William Squarer, disputed that the killer possessed an anatomical skill or sought particular organs. His view was shared by the city medical officer William Sedwick Saunders who was also present at the autopsy. The differing opinions with pathologists is still something that can be argued today. This is why lawyers of the defense or prosecution can get a private second autopsy conducted if needed. However yet again I feel I need to point out that the infancy of medicine and the advances in science can make the arguments for both sides to be valid. Future killers 
have shown that you don't need any anatomical knowledge after a few kills to know how to dissect or remove body parts. We just need to look at Ed Gein. A bloodstained fragment of Edo's apron was found laying in the passage of the doorway leading to Goulston Street in Whitechapel, about 500 metres from the murder scene. There was a chalk writing on the wall of the doorway which read either the Jews, spelled J-U-W-E-S, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, or the Jews are not the men who will be blamed for nothing. At 5am, Commissioner Warren attended the scene and ordered the words to be erased for fear that they would spark anti-Semitic riots. It just so happened that Gorston Street was on the direct route to Mitre Square, to Flower and Dean Street, where both Stride and Eddowes lived. Which further puts forward the theory that Jack selected his victims, rather than just chose them at random. I believe that he did have a few victims in his list, and when the opportunities arose, he killed them. The Middlesex coroner Baxter believed that Stride had been attacked with a swift and sudden action, as she was still holding a packet of kachus, breath-freshening sweets, in her left hand when she was discovered, indicating that she did not have time to defend herself. Joseph Lord passed through Mitre Square with two other men shortly before Eddowes was murdered there, and may have seen her with a man of about 30 years old, who was shabbily dressed, wore a peat cap and had a fair moustache. Chief Inspector Swanson noted that Lord's description was a near match to others provided by one of the witnesses who may have seen Stride with her murderer. However, Lord stated that he would not be able to identify the man again, and the two other men that Lord was with were unable to give descriptions. Eyewitness testimony should always be taken with a pinch of salt. People's memories can be altered by time, language, and what state they were in at the time. There are a few famous studies that cover this, and they're really interesting. Hopefully you know some of them. The criticism of the Metropolitan Police and the Home Secretary, Henry Matthews, continued to mount as little progress was made with the investigation. The City Police and the Lord Mayor of London offered a reward of £500, roughly £59,000 as of 2023, for information leading to the capture of the villain. The use of bloodhounds to track the killer in the event of another attack was considered and a trial was held in London. But the idea was abandoned because of the trail of scents was confused in the busy city. The dogs were inexperienced and the urban environment, and the owner, Edwin Brewer, was concerned that the dogs were, could be poisoned by criminals if their role in the crime detection became known. On the 27th of September, the Central News Agency received a letter dubbed the Dear Boss Letter in which the writer who signed himself, Jack the Ripper, claimed to have committed the murders on the 1st of October. A postcard dubbed Saucy Jackie Postcard, also signed Jack the Ripper, was received by the agency. It claimed responsibility from the most recent murders on the 30th of September 
and described the murders of two women as a double event, a designation which has endured. I'm actually in two minds about whether this was the real killer. Serial killers have been known to contact newspapers or police. One very notable one is the Zodiac Killer. He sent his ciphers through to the newspapers to be published, and one of them was eventually solved by two school teachers. Another one was Dennis Rader, or BTK. He was a little bit on the dumb side and communicated to the FBI through classified ads in the newspapers and asked whether um, information on a floppy disk could be tracked. However, other investigations have been derailed because of false information being sent to news outlets or police. In a very similar case of the Yorkshire Ripper, a man claiming to be the Yorkshire Ripper sent in a voice recording and due to the accent of the speaker and where the tape was mailed from, this distracted the investigation for far longer than it should have and created more victims because of the false information. At least a decade after Peter Sutcliffe the actual real Yorkshire Ripper was captured. A man was charged from wasting police time after he admitted to being the person who sent in the voice recording. On the 16th of October, George Lusk of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee received another letter claiming to be from the killer. The handwriting and style were unlike that of the Dear Boss letter and Saucy Jack postcard. The letter arrived with a small box containing half of a human kidney preserved in alcohol. The letter's writer claimed that he had extracted it from the body of Eddowes and that he had fried and ate the missing half. Opinion on whether the kidney and the letter were genuine is and was divided. And by the end of October, the police had interviewed more than 2,000 people, investigated upwards of 300 and detained 80 and they were no closer to catching the killer. On Friday the 9th of November, Mary Jane Kelly was murdered in the single room where she lived at 13 Millers Court, off Dorset Street, Spitfields. If you remember, one of the earlier victims, Chapman, had lived in Dawson Street, and Eddowes was also reported to have occasionally slept rough there. Kelly's severely mutilated body was discovered shortly after 45am, laying on the bed. The first doctor at the scene, Dr Phillips, believed that Kelly was killed by a slash to the throat. After her death, her abdominal cavity was sliced open and all of her viscera removed and spread around the room. Her breasts had been cut off, her face mutilated beyond recognition, her thighs partially cut through to the bone and some of the muscles removed. Unlike the other victims, she was undressed and only wore a light chemise. Her clothes were folded neatly on a chair, with the exception of some found burnt in the grate. Kelly's murder was the most savage, probably because the murderer had more time to commit his atrocities in a private room rather than in the street. Her state of undress and folded clothes have led to suggestions that she undressed herself before lying down on the bed, 
which would indicate that she was likely killed by someone she knew or by someone she believed to be a client or whether she was asleep or intoxicated. The photographs of this scene are something that should not be looked at lightly. The savagery of Jack can be seen in this room. I agree that the mutilation was so severe because he had the time and privacy to conduct this murder. It has been found in other cases that killers can fixate on a particular victim more than others because it fits with the model that they are really showing all their rage and anger towards. But this does not make it nice or right. The coroner of Northeast Middlesex, Dr. MacDonald, presided over the inquest into Calais' death at Shoreditch Town Hall on the 12th of November. Amid scenes of great emotion and an enormous crowd of mourners that attended Mary Calais' funeral on the 19th of November, the streets became gridlocked and the concierge struggled to travel from Shoreditch Mortuary to the Roman Catholic Cemetery at Laystone where she was laid to rest. On the 10th of November, the police surgeon, Thomas Bond, wrote to Thomas Robert Anderson, head of the London CID, detailing the similarities between the five murders, Nicholas, Chapman, Stride, Eddowes and Kelly, no doubt committed by the same hand. He was merely reiterating what the press had already been saying. On the same day, the cabinet resolved to offer a pardon to any accomplice who came forward with information that led to the conviction of the actual murderer. The Metropolitan Police Commissioner reported that Whitechapel murder remained unidentified despite 143 extra plainclothes policemen deployed into the Whitechapel in November and December. I will now move on to two others who I believe could have been further victims of Jack, but are always considered to be outside of the Conical Five. On Thursday, the 20th of December, 1888, a patrolling constable found that the strangled body of 26-year-old Rose Mallet in Clark's Yard of Popular High Street was found. She was also known as Catherine Millett or Drunken Lizzie Davis and she had lodged at 18 George Street which was the same as Emma Smith. Four doctors examined Milet's body though she had been murdered but Robert Anderson thought she had accidentally handed herself on the collar of her dress while in a drunken stupor. The coroner, Wynne Bexton, told the inquest jury that there is no evidence to show that the death was at the result of violence. Nevertheless, the jury returned the verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown. And the case was added to the Whitechapel file. I do think that it is far too much of a coincidence that Milet lived somewhere that Smith and I also know from other cases that just because violence is not shown on a victim does not mean that there wasn't any. Alice McKenzie was murdered about 12.40am 
on Wednesday the 17th of July, 1889, in Castle Alley, Whitechapel. Like most of the previous murders, her left carotid artery was severed from left to right, and there were wounds on her abdomen. However, her wounds were not as deep as in previous murders, like a short blade was used. Commissioner Monroe and one of the pathologists examining the body, Bond, believed this bit to be a ripper murder. Though another of the pathologists, Phillips and Robert Anderson, disagreed. Later writers are also divided, and they either suggest that Mackenzie was a ripper victim, or that the unknown murderer tried to make it look like a ripper killing to deflect suspicion from himself. At the inquest, Coroner Baxter acknowledged both possibilities and concluded, There is great similarity between this and the other class of cases which have happened in this neighbourhood, and if the same person has not committed this crime, it is clearly an imitation of the other cases. I know from cases happening past and present that killers can have a cooling off period after a big, notable crime. But since I am of the opinion that Jack saw himself as untouchable by the police, I don't think that he would have stopped after Kelly. I believe the horrendous murder of Kelly relinquished his bloodthirst for some time, and this may be why he only strangled Millette. But the similarities of Mackenzie to the other victims is too similar, and I doubt whether there would be have been such similar killings in the same area. The short blade does not really concern me as it concerns some of the coroners at the time, as, as I have mentioned, he did use short bladed knives on others on his other victims. So I think that he liked to chop and change between, pardon my pun, between his weapons. There was one last murder in Whitechapel. This one is the one that I am more unsure of because of the amount of time that is between. This murder was on Friday the 13th of February, 1891, when Francis Cole was murdered under a railway arch in Swallow Gardens, Whitechapel. Her body was found at 2.15am, only moments after the attack. P.C. Ernest Thompson, who later stated that he had heard retreating footsteps in the distance. As a contemporary police practice dictated, Thompson remained at the scene with the victim. She was still alive, but died before any medical help could arrive. Minor wounds on the back of her head suggested that she was thrown back violently to the ground, before her throat was cut at least twice from left to right, and then back again. Otherwise, there were no mutilations to her body, leading to believe that Thompson had disturbed her assault. This one, because it is so similar with the left to right, the assault, I do believe it could be related and that Jack the Ripper could have just gone away for a while and come back again. But I just think because it stands alone, it's so far after the others, I just have reservations. But 
it's still linked to the, the Whitechapel files and I still think it, it could be. There is a high possibility. But just because that passage of time, uh, I feel hesitant to be able to add that. A man named James Sadler, who had earlier been seen with Coles, was arrested by police and charged with a murder. A high-profile investigation by Swanson Moore into Sadler's past history and his whereabouts at the time of the previous Whitechapel murders indicates that police suspected him to be the Ripper. However, Sadler was released on the 3rd of March for lack of evidence. I do not believe we will ever know who Jack the Ripper was. DNA evidence has been sought after, but with time and improper storage, this has just not been achievable. Many have put forward different theories of who the culprit could be, but I don't really want to tarnish any names or any families because we cannot know for sure and I don't think it's fair. I do believe that Jack selected his victims because of their professions and where they lived. I do think he knew who he wanted to kill, but he didn't have a specific order just when he got the opportunity. And I don't think he stopped or started at these murders. He just perfected or moved on. The police were at a disadvantage for the time to try and find Jack. Unless someone saw you with a knife at the victim's throat or you confessed, I think it was hard to get someone who genuinely committed the crimes. With the knowledge of geographical profiling, Jack could have demonstrated one of two options. He either lived or worked at the centre of these crimes because he knew his way around the streets and how to avoid other patrolling policemen. He occasionally slipped up, but never to the point of being caught. The other option is that he did know Whitechapel well, but he did not live there. So he kept himself out of the suspect pool and had another persona for people who he lived and worked with. Both are possible and are very probable, but the truth has faded into history. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. I would really like to thank you for listening to today's episode, and I hope you will join me to the next one, where I will be covering the mystery that is the Bermuda Triangle. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at macabremortals at gmail.com, or if you have any suggestions for anything that you would like me to cover. And please, if you can, give me a follow on Instagram or Facebook. And if you're listening on Spotify, I think there's a really cool thing now which you can do, which you can actually tell me whether you're enjoying these episodes. And please, wherever you are in the world, stay safe.